Have a seat. I was recently made aware of a disorder that I had never known about before, never heard anything about, didn't know anything about it. Uh, The name of this disorder is Oppositional Defiant Disorder, and that's not something that, it's kind of a mouthful. I don't know uh, anything about it until recently. And what I found was is that it's a uh, disruptive kind of impulse control uh, disorder. Uh, that, uh, that some kids actually uh, suffer with. And what it is, it's, it's a pattern of angry, argumentative, uh, defiant uh, behavior and vindictiveness that comes from a child. Uh, but before uh, those of us who are skeptical say, that just sounds like uh, another thing, another name disorder that just describes normal children behavior, because it kind of does, because uh, all of us in some sense, you know, struggle with that kind of uh, defiance in and of ourselves. I can tell you that I've been recently kind of witnessed uh, to a child who struggles with this, um, and that uh, just been able to kind of observe uh, that struggle, and I can tell you it's just a different thing. It's just something that's different. It takes the normal things that are part of the human experience and life and heart and kind of uh, deeply roots those, and they come out with just uh, really kind of putrid fruit, honestly. It's very difficult. It's painful to watch uh, this child that I'm aware of, not a child in our church, just so that you know, uh, a child who's talented and kind of otherwise healthy, but kind of immediately and instinctually opposes all authority. Uh, the, the second that there is a whiff of authority, uh, there's kind of an immediate opposition to it, and it's really stark. It's kind of uh, startling to watch uh, happen. But if we're being honest, there are quite a few of us that at least have that trace, that similar instinct in our hearts to buck against authority. Now, for some of us, we're rule followers. Probably 50% of us are just, hey, tell me the rules. Give me the uh, method to follow. I'll, I'll you know, uh, follow after it. For uh, those of us who are not necessarily that way, you kind of just have this instinct to kind of push against expectations that you might have. And whether it's a boss or a teacher, whether it's an elected representative or whether it's your recently elected uh, homeowners association leader, there's just that sense like, eh, I don't like it. I don't like that you have some sense of responsibility or authority in my life. Uh, speaking of like kind of those who are just in, uh, who are responsible for us, uh, parents and spouses, church leaders, I wonder if you feel in your heart some sense of resistance in that. And, and many of us uh, good Texans, many of us um, Americans, we have that kind of already kind of born out in like just a national pride. It's like, I am an individual. You will not tread on my liberty. I don't like this authority that you have over me. There's almost just this resistance that's already kind of, if it's not in uh, people just in general, it's certainly in kind of a national consciousness. However, Though there are certain times for reform and even resistance of authority, uh, generally speaking, Christians don't resist authority. Uh, we're called most often, most often, to trust God's sovereignty and His placement of leaders and authority figures in our lives. And so uh, there's already kind of a tension built into some of that. Those of us who struggle a bit with authority, but know that as Christians we're called to trust God's sovereignty, trust that He tells us that we're to pray for and support and even render unto or even submit to authority. So in a very real sense, I'm going to say something that might be controversial, that might strike you a little hard this morning. There's no such thing as an autonomous Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who is free from every authority, and it's actually, I seek to 
tell you this this morning, it's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. In Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, we'll actually get a front row seat. We'll get a witness to these themes as they kind of converge. And we'll see a relationship between salvation and authority. So go with me to the first verse of chapter 25 in the book of Acts. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning, to ambush, planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Christians, what we find here is that Christians receive salvation by appealing to a higher authority. Christians receive salvation by appealing to a higher authority. And we need a little bit of context because we see there in verse 1, we see now three days after Festus arrived, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. But Festus is not somebody that we're familiar with from this story. You know, his name starts with an F, but last chapter you'll remember that it was Felix, not Festus. So who is this guy? What is he doing here? Why has he come? Felix, who had left Paul under house arrest for two years, we found out right before Easter, was cruel and heavy-handed. He, as the previous governor of the province, uh, was actually recalled by the Senate of Rome. We know this through Josephus, the historian. He was recalled into Rome and there punished publicly in front of the Senate. And he was actually just lucky to escape with his life. Because he had been cruel, he had been heavy-handed with the people that were underneath his governance. He, he had been particularly cruel with the Jews, and there had been a lot of political unrest there. So Festus is now replacing Felix, and he knows that he has a very difficult job to do. The hornet's nest, so to speak, is already kind of stirred up. And he's there, and Rome is paying attention to what's going on in this province. So Festus gets there to his job, and one of the first things that he does is go down or go up to Jerusalem. 
He goes up to Jerusalem to try to make some sort of peace. You're already kind of remembering a few weeks ago when we talked about the politics of persecution, you're you're understanding that he's in a tough place. He's got a lot of political unrest that he needs to make amends for. He's got a very difficult job to do. So as he goes immediately to Israel, he meets there with the chief priests and the principals of the people we see in verse 2. He's there meeting with the people that he needs to meet with, and you might be tempted to think that they had forgotten after two years all about Paul. But you see that, I mean, literally in this passage, it's talking about three days in, he did this. After eight to ten days, he did that. Almost immediately, the Jews bring up Paul. It's crazy. Paul's been in, uh, in, in uh, I mean, literally under arrest. He's been there in custody. He's had some little bit of liberty. He wasn't like a full-time prisoner. He had had uh, the ability for some of the Christians to be able to attend to his needs. But we know that Paul is not a problem for these Jews, and yet it's one of the first things that they mention. So you might be tempted to think that they had forgotten all about him, but you would be wrong. What we find is, is that there is a normal pattern to these things. And and I want to step away from the text real quickly to address this, okay? If you've been with us through Acts, you might be like, man, this is like the third time in just like the last couple of chapters that Paul has been persecuted, that he's faced persecution, that he's been uh, wrongly tried and kind of condemned, and he gives this defense, and he's always giving the same defense, and he's speaking about the same testimony that he has and the same gospel. And you might be tempted to think that this text really doesn't have anything new for us this morning. What I can tell you is is that it couldn't be further from the truth. That pattern, that normal pattern that we see here is actually going to tell us something very specific about the gospel. So there are kind of three things that lead up to this appeal to a higher authority. It is the tireless pursuit to persecute. It is the same charges and same defense, and it is the fatal favor that is asked for. Let's talk about the first thing in verse 2, the tireless uh, pursuit to persecute. It says this, the Jews went up with him and they laid out their case against Paul. They urged him, they urged Festus, asking for a favor. Again, they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. That's something that we've heard about before. And and what you need to know is, is that this ambush that would have happened, it wasn't just going to take Paul's life. You have to understand something about what would have happened. If the Jews had gotten their way, if they had asked for this favor and Festus had said, yeah, bring Paul on down. Do you remember how Paul went? He went underneath the, uh, the coverage of hundreds of Roman soldiers. He wouldn't have been brought maybe back in quite the same way, but he certainly would have had a contingency of soldiers like surrounding him, bringing a prisoner down for a special trial. You start to get the picture of what's happening here. The the Jews would have been laying in ambush for him, and it would have been a suicide mission. If you want to understand how much they hated Paul, how much they hated the gospel, you need to understand that this was something that they were asking for so that they could ambush him and lose their lives. Have you ever believed in something or hated somebody so much that you would have been willing to literally like let go of your life to accomplish it? That's the kind of hate that they had. They were tirelessly pursuing persecution of the way specifically of Paul. That's how committed they were, that even after two years they were willing to die to do the deed. 
we get an idea that they weren't just trying to protect their power anymore. We've mentioned that before, that the uh, Jewish leaders were wanting to persecute Paul because they just wanted to retain power. But you get the idea that if somebody is like literally willing to die, that they're not as interested about their power anymore. There's something else that's drawing them to that deep of a hatred of this man. It's because he's toying with their worldview. He's toying with their way of life. As he goes and he writes these uh, messages, even from prison, they're seeing throngs of people flock to the good news of the gospel, and they hate it. Their worldview is being picked apart, pulled apart, and they just have to, they're even willing to die to protect it. That's what's going on here. The message of the gospel actually upends everything. It makes demands of our lives. And I actually think that this is one of the mistakes that we make today, that I make today. A lot of times, even if you're willing to evangelize, and maybe it's been a long time since you've been willing to evangelize, but even when we are willing to evangelize, we're willing to tell people full-throatedly that Jesus is king, but we're not as willing to tell people that it takes their whole lives. We're not as willing to uh, say, hey, Jesus is king and it will cost you your life. We we almost pretend like the effects of Jesus' kingship in our lives are minimal. But if we, like Paul, proclaim the whole and the demanding gospel of Jesus' commandments and kingdom, then the enemies of our God will be our enemies and they will tirelessly pursue our persecution. That's the first step in this pattern that we've seen over and over again, is that people are willingly, willingly and tirelessly willing to persecute believers. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can somehow preach a half-hearted gospel that leaves us apart from that persecution. So then what we see is that Festus, whether by uh, special knowledge of the plot, we're not told, or maybe he's just cunning enough to know that this is kind of what the Jews do. Uh, We don't know, we're not told, but he is reluctant to have Paul come down to Jerusalem and be tried there. He's willing to stand up against these people that we're about to discover. He has every every reason really to please. He's willing to tell them, no, 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 I'm, I'm going up to Caesarea in a few days. If you want to try Paul, go with me, go with me up to Caesarea. So whether by knowledge or cunning, Paul's there, I'm going there, come with me. And then we see the second part of this pattern play out. The same charges are brought and the same defense is given. Look in verse 7 and and 8. So what do they do? They do, they go up with him and bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove, they give the same charges over again. And then Paul argues again, as he has the last several times in the last several chapters, I committed no offense. I've committed no offense against the Jews, against their law, against the temple. I have done nothing wrong. But he lands always on this because he knows that his fate really hinges on whether or not he's done something to Rome. He says, not only have I not done anything or committed any offense against the Jews and their law, I've done nothing wrong in the eyes of Caesar. I've done nothing against the Roman law. I've committed no offense. Paul's been through this time and time again. First, a charge is brought, and then a defense is given, and then he shares his testimony. 
So we're, we're, we're supposed to be covering the whole chapter this week. Uh, it, it's long, and we've been through Paul's uh, description of his testimony, how he met the resurrected Christ on the way uh, to Damascus, and how he was blinded by the light, and about how everything changed when Jesus spoke to him. So we've been through that before, but we see that pattern played out even here in front of Festus, in front of Agrippa, in front of Bernice. You can go on to read about that, but it fits into the same pattern. It's important to note here that Paul shares his testimony amidst persecution time after time, several times in a row, and we don't get any sense even here in the midst of it that he's tired of it that he doesn't expect it. It's important here to know, notice that he, he doesn't, uh, he, he sees a purpose in it, that it's necessary to tell and retell the gospel, and he expects it. A few years ago, a well-intentioned person actually uh, at City Church said, and I've heard this, some version of this a lot of times, uh, you come into a gospel-preaching church, and we preach the gospel, and they say, hey, you know, we talk a lot about the gospel, um, but what about all of the other things? What about all of the other stuff? And, and here's the truth. That's a valid critique. We will never, ever, ever be a church that does not proclaim the gospel. But there are parts of our worldview that we need to discuss, that we need to round out. There are uh, things that need more depth and more context for us. So we can't go on only being a church that just tells and tells and retells the story of the gospel to the exclusion of everything but also, if we're following Paul's directive here, we must always tell and retell the gospel. We must always tell and retell. If you're wanting to come here and always hear a new message, what I will tell you is, is that we want to be a church that is giving you a fully or very robust, very holistic view of the entire Christian life. We want to do that, but we will always have as the beginning and the end the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're wanting something other than that, this is not the place for you. And I'll just be bold to say it. We're always going to be like Paul, telling and retelling the gospel story. So much of the Christian life is a rehearsal of the gospel. One of the first books that I uh, read when I, uh, maybe not came to faith, but when I became serious about my faith for the first time, about sophomore year of high school, the first like extra biblical book that had any grit, any substance to it was a book, I think written by Jerry Bridges. I'm not, I haven't read it since then, but it was a very formative book called The Discipline of Grace. And, and the whole thesis of The Discipline of Grace was that uh, the entire life of a Christian should be one of telling the gospel to themselves over and over on a daily basis. And you might think, man, you know, it's, I feel like a good year of that probably brings you to the end of the gospel, and it doesn't. There is always a part of the gospel that has new application for us, that uh, it can dig a little bit more deeply, a way that the gospel uh, pulls back a layer and exposes or digs through the floor, the basement of who we thought that we were, and reveals a basement beneath that. The gospel is so deep, and it is by a discipline of grace. It's by that discipline of telling and retelling the gospel over and over again that we can live this life, not just in obedience to Christ, but abundantly. There is no end to the gospel. We must be disciplined to preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. We must be fluent in the way that we are able to apply the gospel. We must be disciplined 
in our recitation of this mighty meta-narrative, this story that we cling to, that we must have like pushed into us, that we must have come out of us. So much of the Christian life is a rehearsal of the gospel. So we, we see this pattern start in the tireless pursuit to persecute, and then we see the same charges and the same defense mentioned, but finally we come to the fatal favor, what I'm calling the fatal favor. Several times in the last uh, few chapters, we've seen favors being asked of Rome. The Jews were asking for favors. They knew that Festus was there. They knew that he had, they, they may not have had the political authority, but they didn't have the military might to usurp Rome, but they knew that they could make life miserable enough for Festus, that they were asking for favors and knew that there was a pretty good chance that they have to ask just in the right way, pretty, pretty please, that Rome just might give them what they were asking for, that Festus might have just acquiesced to what they were asking for. See it with me in verse 9. They asked for a favor, and now Festus is considering it. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me? Now, we aren't sure that Festus knew about the plan, but here's what we do know. We have enough information about his motivation, and his motivation was to please his constituents. It was to take all of the uh, fires that had been started by his predecessor and, and, and put blankets over them and try to quell them. If, they could, if he could have sacrificed one man, if he could have sacrificed just a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of justice, and had this one man go down to Jerusalem so that he could have more peace, more of that Pax Romana that we talked about a few weeks ago, maybe it would have been worth it. It's a fatal favor that they're asking for. Festus was willing to sacrifice justice. He was willing to sacrifice the life of a Roman citizen to win the favor of the Jews. And, and here's the point. I mean, some of us might go, I get it. Yeah, I see why some politician in that time and day would do that. Here's the truth. We see that kind of unrighteous exchange all the time. We see unrighteous decisions made all the time for sordid gain, and it's not just confined to the halls of our politics. It's in our offices. It's in our testing rooms. It's in our uh, houses. It's with our roommates. We're willing to do deals all the time. Even in the midst of our marriages, I've mentioned this before, a lot of times uh, we try to exchange with our spouses like our pet idols, our pet sins. I, I won't mention too much about uh, your gluttony if you'll let me spend our money the way that I want to. We, we kind of do these deals all the time, exchanging justice and righteousness for what we want. So it's not just Festus. It's not just the Jews. It's us. And it is a Christian responsibility to do righteous, to do righteousness and to prize true justice. It is our job as Christians to be holy and to model holiness in this world. However, if we're working along through the course of our lives thinking that we won't encounter injustice, you're just painfully mistaken. If, if you think that you're not going to be confronted with uh, situations where it is just lose-lose, you're going to lose a friend if you don't lie along with them or if you don't continue the gossip, you're going to lose your job if you uh, say something about a boss who's hiding money or mistreating employees, we're put to these kinds of decisions all the time. 
And what we need to do is rather than entering into unholy bargains, we need to see Paul's boldness and to call out unrighteousness when we see it just like he does here. Why? How do we see it? Paul knows his rights as a Roman citizen. And though he was hesitant to use them for the last two years, he also knows God's promises and where God has promised to take him, and that's to Rome. So we see this uh, pursuit to persecute. We see the charges and the defense. We see this fatal favor that is asked. But finally, in verse 11, we see an appeal to a higher authority. Read verse 11 with me. Verse 11 says this. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed uh, anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one, not even you, Festus, can give me up. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, because he, he knew that there was a lot riding on this decision, man, this man has taken advantage of his rights. You know, it's, it's similar to if somebody was read their rights and they have the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney. You, you see a person there being interrogated and they say, hey, I need my advocate. And the police can keep on talking, but they have to let him have access to that advocate. He appeals to a higher authority. There's nothing to the charge. No one can give me up. I appeal to Caesar. Paul has rights, and he's, though he's slow to exploit those rights, though he's slow over the course of those two years in prison that he's been unjustly held, his life is now hanging in the balance. His trip to Rome is on the line, and Paul realizes what he's got to do. He's literally appealing. He's appealing to Caesar. I wonder if you've ever appealed to anyone before. Maybe not in a legal sense. Maybe, maybe you had a boss that was uh, doing something wrong and you, you had to appeal to a higher authority. You had to go to HR. You had to go to their boss just to let them know that there was something illegal or something illicit that was happening and they just needed to know about it and you appealed to them. That, that's one of the reasons why we even have a justice system that is set up this way. You are... Uh, capable, any one of us, of being dragged into a court at any time, whether a civil or criminal thing. And if you have been unjustly accused, there's no guarantee that you will not receive an unjust punishment or an unjust conviction. But in this country, we have the ability to appeal that decision. If we know that we are righteous, we can appeal. If we believe that a wrong has been done, we can appeal. There's nothing different happening here. Paul appeals and appeals and appeals, and this is his final appeal that he takes to Rome. My very last class in college, I had a very storied history in college. It was not great. Uh, I was married. Sawyer and I had uh, just started our married life together. I had promised her dad that I would be uh, graduated uh, by the time that we got married, and I broke that promise because we set a date, and then I didn't get the chance to take the class. But I, I, I took the class that spring, and what happened was, is I was in a really demanding class. I didn't show up for the uh, thesis. I didn't get the, or, sorry, the syllabus. And so I didn't know all of the ins and outs of the class, but I had proven that I had known just enough 
about what was going on to earn an 86 before the final in my class. So I had an 86 average, you're thinking, oh, that, that's not bad. I was never going to class, and at the final review, I was called up, this was like a huge, one of those stadium-style classes, and I heard my name called out after the review, I need Chris and this person and that person to come down, and what had happened was I had missed so much class that the, Paul, uh, that the, uh, that the teacher um, called me down and just said, hey, by the way, uh, you're going to receive uh, two grade uh, decrease in your overall grade, which was not good because this was one of my final classes. I had to make a C. I couldn't just like skate by with a D. And this teacher had been just awful. Like tons of the students had really disliked him. I figured out mathematically that in order to receive more than an 89.4, I had to make a 100 exactly on the test. And so for the first time in college, I studied. And I, <laughs> yes, that is probably nearer to the truth than it should be. Um, I, I did study. And you know what? I made a 96. And you know what that professor did? He gave me that grade. And he filed it in. And I literally, to the grade, to the decimal point, made a 69.4 in that class. And he put it online. And I couldn't believe it. I, I, I went and I appealed. I went to the first, you know, his kind of, you know, uh, director over, and they said, hey, you, you had the syllabus? I was like, I didn't. But uh, he said, you know, they told you what was happening. I went to the dean. Nothing I could do. I had appealed the authority. And so I went back later uh, in the fall to apply for graduation. I was already enrolled in this other class. And uh, essentially, I was told, like, oh, you, you, you can apply for graduation. Why didn't you apply for graduation now? So I, you know, I had this one class, and it was like, no, no, you got an 89. What? What had happened was I had appealed to that dean, and he had had so many other people complain about this teacher that they had fired him. He was using, like, uh, way outdated data and, like, all this. It's not worth even the story. He had been an awful professor. They fired him, and the dean had reinstated my grade and then in a final swing of justice, having to do with my college career, never let me know about it. Didn't even know. Uh, so I appealed, and I had the ability to actually be made full in my grade. Probably didn't deserve it. But I appealed, and someone listened. I appealed to a higher authority. Christians do not have to be antagonistic or defiant to authority. We can actually indeed appeal to a higher authority, and it's good. And what we see is Paul appealing to that higher authority, and what does he get? Verse 12, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. He's saved. Paul is saved through his appeal to a higher authority. I wonder if that just sounds familiar to you. I wonder if this morning you see this pattern that is happening and it just sounds familiar to you. I wonder if it sounds like the story of the gospel. I wonder if it sounds like Jesus to you. They persisted to persecute the Christ. It's the same pattern. They brought charges against the Christ. They asked for a fatal favor from the Romans about our Christ. 
and Christ made a final appeal. I want to drill into this so that we can just suck the marrow out of it this morning. Matthew chapter 26, it says that the uh, chief leaders and scribes and rulers, actually, uh, they, they were uh, not just persecuting the Christ, they were conspiring. They said that they were uh, doing it by stealth. That word is mentioned in the ESV, that they were uh, conspiring in stealthy ways to crucify the Christ, to kill him. The Jews plotted and schemed. John chapter 18 says, uh, whom do you seek? This big contingent comes into the garden there in a dark night, and Jesus has just finished praying, praying that God would relieve him of the cup. He's been sweating tears, and he asked this group of people, who do you seek? They see Jesus of Nazareth, and there's a funny thing that happens. He says, I am. He just says, I am. I'm he. And do you, do you know what happens when he says, I am he? They've come to persecute him, he admits who he is. He says, I am he. And the entire crowd falls down on their face. Did you know that? You can read it. Jesus says, I am. And everybody bows down involuntarily to the Son of Man. They come to persecute him, come to persecute the Christ. And he proves who he is. They, they bring him between this... Uh, um, this uh, concoction of different leaders and authorities at the time. They bring him before the Jews and the, uh, the, the chief leaders of the day, and they falsely charge him. They say, you, you are a blasphemer. You don't have to turn with me there, but in Matthew chapter 26, they say this, but Jesus remained silent in the High priest said to him, I adjourn you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And of course, he knew. This was not the only time that he was asked. He was asked this by Pilate. He was asked, Who, who is it that you are? And he says, You've, You said it. There's this pattern at the very end of Jesus' story when he is being tried, and they say, are you the Son of Man? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? And he said, you've said so. There's a pattern. He's persecuted. His charges are being brought forward to him, and he gives the same defense. You said it. That's exactly who I am. And finally, a fatal favor is asked of the Romans. Very briefly, in Matthew chapter 28, we, we actually see all of this coming together where the Jews do not have the ability to crucify Jesus. They have to ask somebody else to do the dirty deed, and so they've asked for this fatal favor. And they send him off to uh, these uh, different Roman rulers, and they don't find any fault, and they try to get out of it. And they say, hey, listen, do you want uh, Jesus or do you want Barnabas or Barabbas? Sorry. And they, they choose Jesus. They've conspired with these Romans to execute the Son of God. 
persecution of Christ, the charges of blasphemy, and then the fatal favor. And when Jesus is facing this fatal favor, when he's being crucified on the cross, what does he do? He makes an appeal of his own. He makes an appeal of his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's making an appeal to God. We see this gospel pattern actually born out in the life of Christ. And there in his dying words, he makes an appeal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you were being unjustly charged, tried, convicted. You're sitting there in the midst of death row. You've been charged and you're going to face execution. And there at the last minute, I want you to imagine that on death row, you get word of a stay of your execution. They found out that you were innocent. And I want you to imagine the relief in that moment. You've made your appeal to the governor. He's heard you and you are saved. Here we see the exact opposite happen. Jesus makes his appeal to the higher authority of God who is in heaven. And for the first time, ever in his perfect relationship with God the Father, there is silence. Utter, cosmic, deafening silence, and then he is dead. But it's not that the Father didn't hear the appeal of Christ. It's not that he didn't hear the appeal of Jesus on the cross and be completely deaf forever. He sees the appeal that is in Jesus' innocent blood, and he answers finally in the resurrection. I, I want you to see something with me. I want you to see that those who are guilty can actually make an appeal to God for their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that they can make an appeal for life in his resurrected life. Here's what we have to understand, beloved. Here's what we've got to get. Here's what we need to see in the text this morning, Christians. You must see that you receive salvation by appealing to the higher authority of Christ. This gospel pattern, this gospel pattern that worked out for the death of Jesus, his appeal unheard works out for us for our righteousness. How does this apply to us? How how do we take this pattern? How do we see uh, Paul's Roman citizenship leading to his right to appeal? How do we see that actually making sense of our heavenly citizenship? How do we see that our heavenly citizenship is like Paul's Roman citizenship and that our heavenly citizenship through Christ actually gives us the right to appeal? So now I'm not just talking, pay attention to what I've done. I've pivoted a little bit. I've said, listen, we see this gospel pattern actually born out in our day-to-day living by way of asking for salvation, but it actually continues through our salvation into day-to-day Christian life. How does it do that? How does it give us the right to appeal? 
Well, first of all, it teaches us something about how we use our earthly rights. If Paul was reluctant to use his earthly rights until they were necessary, then we should maybe be reluctant to use them too. But here's the question. If we have heavenly rights in a heavenly citizenship, should we be reluctant to use those? And the answer is no. No. When you have sinned, when you have sinned, confess that sin and then appeal to the Father in Christ for salvation. When you have sinned, appeal to the Father for righteousness through Christ. I want to give you another couple of examples here. For plenty of us, we know, we know in our hearts that we have appealed to God and that we are saved by grace through that faithful appeal. But how, how does that apply when we still feel guilt and shame and condemnation for our sin? I wonder if you're like me. You know in, in kind of this big overarching way that we've been justified in our sin, that I don't need to worry about my sin, but I still carry the shame with me. Then we can appeal to the righteousness of Christ. We can know that when God the Father hears our appeal and He looks at us, He sees us as faithful brothers and sisters of Christ, covered over by His righteousness. Maybe more practically, how does this apply? Maybe you struggle with fear of man. You just like, you're afraid of people uh, being against you. You're afraid that you said the wrong word and now that person hates you. You maybe did something against another person. You sinned against them and it's just eating you up inside. It's keeping you up at night. It's dividing you and keeping you from being restored in relationship to that person. How does the appeal apply there? We appeal to our status as sons and daughters of the mighty Father. And here's what that does for us. You might think, that doesn't seem to really help me in the midst of my fear of man. Here's what it does. It takes the stinger out. If you have a perfect, loving relationship with a heavenly Father, and there is disintegration, distortion in a relationship here on earth, and it causes you to be anxious and fearful, what do you have to fear of that person? If the greatest being in this entire universe loves and cares for you, why are you filled with anxiety about brokenness in a relationship here? You can have confidence. You can make an appeal to the everlasting Father and have confidence. Maybe for you, though, it's more of the monotony of life. It's just, man, I'm, I'm going to school. I'm taking a test. I'm getting up the next day. I'm doing it all over again. I'm studying. I'm doing the books at my business. I'm, you know, putting things online. I'm changing a little bit of copy. I did it yesterday, and it's just boring. I'm changing a diaper. I'm washing the dishes. I'm going to my job. Like, whatever it is that's the monotony of life, here's what you need to understand. If you have made an appeal to God the Father, you've become an ambassador. You've become a reconciler. You are an ambassador of the King and you are on important state affairs. You're helping build and reveal a kingdom here on this earth. That's what the appeal gets you. It gets you the confidence that the things, even the minutia, the monotony in your life really does matter, like truly matter, like everlastingly and eternally matter. It turns everyday chores 
into heavenly things. Finally, maybe you're feeling depressed, you're feeling weary. Before we gathered here this morning, our, uh, our team got together and we just prayed for one another. We asked, hey, what, what kind of appeals do we just need to make of God? What kind of things do we need to ask Him for? And several of our people just said, I'm feeling weary, just uh, wrung out, maybe even a touch of depression. You can appeal to God to remind you that you are in a kingdom of life and light, even when it seems dark and depressing. That's how the appeal matters. Making routine appeals to the truth will cultivate the assurance of God's goodness, and it will give you assurance of your salvation. Finally, I just want to say this. Salvation comes by an appeal to a higher authority that is Christ. We do not say, I appeal to Caesar. We say, I appeal to Jesus. And when we appeal to Jesus, we are saved. But so too, the daily sanctification of a Christian is a joyful appeal to Christ. I want to pray very briefly that that would be true for you this morning. Bow with me. Lord, we do not appeal to you by the name of Caesar. Indeed, there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we can be saved. We appeal to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to know, to know for sure how our appeal is taken up by you. And Lord, that you give credence to the name of our Savior, Jesus. Would you help us to know how sure that appeal is and give us assurance in the midst of that? Father, would you teach our minds to fly to Jesus that we might make our appeals? Would you teach our hearts to trust in Jesus that we might make our appeals through him? Might you teach our voices to proclaim our prize in Jesus? Lord, that we can continue to tell others to make their appeal in Christ. From him alone we receive our salvation. Would you teach our church well how and when to use our earthly rights as Paul did? But would you also teach us how we might leverage all of our rights, both temporary here on this earth and celestial in the gospel, how we might leverage those for the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would bring many, many people here in Fort Worth, we pray that you would bring many, many people to make their appeal in Christ for salvation. Father, we pray that you would not just fill this church, but that you would fill uh, every gospel-preaching church here in this city up with people that are making appeals through Christ. Father, would you make us disciplined to share that with others? Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And we know that that appeal to us came by the way of sending your son, that he might die on a cross and be raised three days later. Father, there is an assurance of this appeal and this salvation. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.